The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus departed from there and came to his native place, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They said, Where did this man get all this? What kind of wisdom has been given him? What mighty deeds are wrought by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his native place and among his own kin, and in his own house. So he was not able to perform any mighty deed there, apart from curing a few sick people by laying his hands on them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The Gospel of the Lord. The great Protestant biblical scholar Alfred von Harnack gave a definition of the gospel stating that a gospel is a passion story with a long introduction. What he was getting at is that the passion of Jesus, the story of his suffering and death, that's the heart of the story. And everything that precedes it is there to try to prepare us for the passion, to draw our attention towards it, and to help us to understand by the time we get to the passion what the passion is all about. This is nowhere more true than in the Gospel of Mark. Indeed, one might well argue that the Gospel of Mark is basically one long passion narrative. Right from the outset of the gospel, as Jesus, after he is baptized by John the Baptist, begins his own public ministry, Mark announces to us that John the Baptist himself has been arrested. John has done something to incur the wrath of powerful people, and he's been thrown in jail for it. And just a few chapters later, we will hear that John the Baptist uh, it has been put to death. Now, if John was arrested and put to death, the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus, what's going to happen to Jesus? Because John the Baptist did not raise half the ruckus that Jesus did. The hornet's nest that Jesus stirred up was far greater and more intense than was John's, and so it's Mark's way of hinting to us and warning us to get ready for some difficult challenges that will stand in the way of Jesus as he moves forward to fulfill his role as prophet and as the Word made flesh. And as the Gospel proceeds, this kind of rejection that Jesus undergoes that will culminate with his arrest 
and crucifixion, this rejection simply grows and intensifies as the gospel narrative unfolds. The Pharisees and the Herodians, normally bitter enemies of one another, they set aside their mutual hatred to conspire to destroy Jesus. They're both outraged at Jesus to the point where they're willing to set aside their own animosities and disagreements to align themselves against Jesus and to plot his death. As the story unfolds, even the disciples repeatedly misunderstand and refuse to believe in what Jesus is trying to teach them. They drag their feet, they dig in their heels, they show themselves to be people of little, if any, faith. And when crunch time comes, when Jesus is arrested, the arrest is the result of the betrayal of one of the disciples, and then Peter denies him and the rest abandon him in his hour of need. They are, of course, rehabilitated in the resurrection, but their lack of faith and their failure to be true to Jesus is sort of the predominant feature of their lives during the public ministry and the passion of the Lord. Today we catch a glimpse of this when Jesus with his disciples comes to his native place, his hometown of Nazareth. People recognize that he's speaking a wisdom and that he is able to perform mighty deeds but as it says, they took offense at him. It's not just that they disagreed with him or kind of ignored him. They were actually offended by what they saw and heard. They were scandalized by the message Jesus preached and the ministry that he performed. Throughout all of this, there's a question that repeatedly keeps being asked in a variety of different ways, but it's, it's the same basic question each and every time. And that's the question of who is Jesus? And with this question about the identity of Jesus, there's another question that's always sort of implicitly connected to it, and that's the question of, will anyone have faith in him? We saw this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus calmed the storm at sea. And the apostles reacted, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Jesus chided them for the, the weakness of their faith. In a few weeks, we'll hear Jesus asking his disciples about sort of the public opinion regarding Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And he will ask that question of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? We hear this question today. Jesus' fellow Nazarenes ask, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Isn't this the same guy that we've known for 30 years, whom we saw grow up in our midst? Where does he get all of this? And as the story says, they did not have faith in him. Jesus himself was amazed at their lack of faith. Who is Jesus and will we have faith in him? And what does that faith mean? 
It means much more than simply accepting doctrinal or theological propositions about Jesus. Those kinds of things have their place, even an important place in the larger picture. But ultimately, faith is about our response to Jesus in terms of whether we will follow him, whether we will accept his leadership and go with him along the path that he himself is walking. Since we put in the new crucifix recently, there have been many people that have come up to me and said, Father, we love the new crucifix. It's really beautiful. And I'm very gratified to hear people say that. And I agree, it's a beautiful image. We, we were trying to find a beautiful image for our parish. But at the same time, we have to be careful about how we understand that beauty. It's not there just to beautify things. It's not there just to be a kind of pretty picture. Because if you think about it, if you look at that crucifix, what it depicts is someone who has undergone torture and execution. State-sponsored execution. A form of execution designed, number one, to be as painful, as prolonged, and as humiliating as human beings can possibly devise. And it was done publicly. It was a spectacle. And the purpose of the spectacle was basically to terrorize people, to strike fear into them so that they will comply with the policies of the government that was exacting this form of execution. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that as Christians, and we're the only religion that does this, we have as arguably the primary symbol of our faith an executed criminal, someone who was condemned to die by the powers that you know, uh, were in charge of the society in which he lived. And we come here, you know, week after week, season after season, year after year over the course of our lives, and we behold this symbol, this sign, someone crucified, someone tortured and executed. We have to understand why we have this. There's a number of reasons, but one of them is actually as a warning to us. Not a warning in the sense of no trespassing, keep out. Indeed, quite the opposite. The sign is there to draw us toward it, to invite us in, and to see it uh, as in terms of what it really represents, the boundless mercy and love of God. God's willingness to pay the highest price to buy us back from sin and death. But there's another kind of warning that it gives. It sort of says, beware. Enter at your own risk, you see. Because we're also invited to follow him who was crucified, to pick up our cross and walk in his footsteps, to share with him the fullness of the mystery that the crucifix represents, both in terms of the dying to self and the gaining of new life 
through the sacrifice that is given. And as the gospel reminds us, this Jesus who's there on that cross, that cross represents the fact that virtually every segment of the society in which he lived rejected him. Rejected him in the strongest possible manner with violence and hatred and fear and anger. And we hold this image up to ourselves, we put it on display as a reminder that what we come here to engage in is the encounter of a message and a mystery that turns the world upside down. The poet Annie Dillard, who herself became a Catholic, she wrote a reflection called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And in it she said, you know, if Christians really understood what it is that they're celebrating when they come to church on Sunday, they come wearing crash helmets and life vests. Because what we're engaged in here is an encounter with, with what life and death really mean and how to avoid death and how to win life. And the paradox is it only happens through him crucified on the cross. And so yes, come in, draw near, but also believe. Who is this that we behold? And what does his life mean for ours? And can I say yes to him not as some sort of an abstract theological proposition, but as a savior whom I will imitate, as a redeemer in whose footsteps I will follow. Beware. Enter in, but do so at your own risk. The Jesus whom we worship, the Jesus whom we are called to follow, is a Jesus that was rejected by virtually every segment of his society. Everybody found him too much for them. By the grace of God, may he not be too much for us.